Welcome to the Leadership for Broadening Participation podcast. This podcast is part of the NSF-funded Golden Project, Geosciences Opportunities for Leadership in Diversity and Equity Network, supporting the post-award training and development for gold PIs. In this episode, we delve into the question of the meaning and relevance of identity as it relates to leadership for broadening participation. We believe the answer to this question is not simple, especially not the kind of simple that reifies the basic problem, one's label being the primary basis for credibility or dismissal. Our decision to do a podcast investigating the credentials and credibility to lead broadening participation was motivated in part by the desire to replace label-based assumptions with valid information about who can and should lead these efforts. That doesn't mean we want to erase identity. Identity is clearly central to this work. For example, we can't be the bridge we talked about in the last episode except through a recognition of our various identities and our similarities to and differences from others. More importantly, the reason that broadening participation efforts are needed is that exclusions, injustices, and distortions have been made and continue to be made, specifically on the basis of identity. This has profound consequences for individuals and for our collective endeavors. Writ large, the world we are capable of living in, the science we are capable of doing, and the knowledge we are capable of creating have all been denied due to our tendency to sort and limit on the basis of identity. So identity somehow must be a central element of what it takes to lead broadening participation efforts. But how? When we first started working with this group of PIs, we asked them to tell us about the identities that they were bringing to their projects. The list includes first-generation student, high school dropout, overly educated, middle class, from a challenging economic background, from a small farm community with no money, upper middle class, from a high poverty community, blue collar, Hispanic, white, multi-ethnic, Native American, Latina, African American, of African descent, underrepresented minority, Caucasian, black, second-generation immigrant, New Zealander, American, gay, heterosexual, Christian, temporarily disabled, someone with a chronic illness, disabled, someone with a learning difference, tall, younger, mom, daughter, father, wife, someone in an interracial marriage, husband, female, woman, cis male, male, cisgender female, minority in a majority setting, faculty at a non-research institution, female in a man's career, white, but my family and community are mostly Hispanic slash black slash white, father of a daughter, outsider, academic, researcher, educator, mentor, practitioner, administrator, colleague. 
immediately we see that leadership for broadening participation cannot be defined by a single label, identity, or even a single category of identities. Rather, identity is relevant to leadership for broadening participation through the process of recognizing one's own identities, claiming and interrogating one's own labels, and analyzing and discovering how these identities are perceived, situated, and relevant to one's own self and to others. On this same survey, we also asked these PIs to tell us about the concerns they had about stepping into leadership. In addition to concerns about workload and about being a change agent, many identified concerns related to their identity. Some actively struggled with potential limitations of identity. In particular, PIs from dominant groups asked questions like, can a white person, male or female, take on a leadership position in diversity? Can I be a respected DEI leader when I haven't lived all these experiences? Will my sources of privilege decrease my effectiveness in this work? Others identified risks associated with membership in marginalized and underrepresented groups. These PIs named concerns such as being silenced and not being given space due to my marginalized social and institutional identities. Adding to the perception that women, people of color, etc. are more concerned about these issues than their science. Dealing with the tendency some have to white-splain when they may not have as much direct experience with diversity in their individual or professional lives as I do. Figuring out what to do if the identity groups that are important to me do not get the same consideration as other underrepresented groups. During our interviews, we asked our leaders to reflect further on the many questions related to identity. In previous episodes, we've looked at identity through origin stories, through the capacity to listen across identities and to be the cousin to reach across these differences, through the discovery and actualization of an authentic self and the ability to be the auntie so that our true identities are strengthened, and through the ways we can use our identities to be the bridge, make change, and create community. This episode features those moments when our leaders grappled more directly with identity, often in response to Kelly's skillful prompting. In this episode, Mary, Darren, Wendy, Grady, and Derek talk about the context for identity, the ways we navigate the internal and external experiences of our identities, the topic of cultural competence as a moderator of identity, the ways that identity changes over time, and the strategic considerations associated with identity. We begin with Mary, who talks about the use of one's own identity-based experiences as a reference in developing empathy. Mary also talks about the way identity can impact the ability to succeed at fieldwork, when experiences associated with identity become confused with the abilities required by science. Do you think that your gender is a benefit or a hindrance to you in this work? And then I'm going to ask you about your race or the intersection of your race and gender. Well, that's a really good question. My gender has been uh, a hindrance more largely in my life as a, a university administrator than as a field geologist. But having experienced that challenge perhaps opens my eyes 
to looking out for signs of where things aren't going right or somebody's being marginalized for one reason or another. I still have privilege in the sense that I was raised as a Caucasian, as a white female, but in a family that spent a lot of time outdoors. So camping for me was something I embraced. I don't know that it means people treat me differently as much as I can enter, I can step into the world of field camp, of field courses, of field experiences, and know that I am good to go and I don't have, I, I have confidence. And, and confidence and self-esteem is a big part of it. And as soon as you start to get beat down, it, it builds on itself. And so I now look at people in my courses who are headed to our field camp, who have never camped, um, did not grow up in this kind of environment. And we, as a group of faculty, need to figure out ways that we ease people in, that we may, you know, let them know, hey, we're here to help you. And the whole point of field camp isn't learning to pee outside <laughs> or to sleep on the ground. <laughs> the point of field camp is to learn to see what the rocks are in the field. But when these other things get in the way, <laughs> then, then the learning stops. So, um, so anyway, it's all part of it, I guess. That's great. So I just learned something because that's where I got stuck. Yeah. <laughs> as she did with Mary, Kelly asked Darren to reflect on the relevance of his identity as a white man to his leadership for broadening participation. As his answer unfolds, he speaks of the intersectionality of these identities with being disabled. During the course of our ensuing discussion about the implications of our different identities, Kelly, Darren, and I find ourselves discovering the intimacy of our similarities despite these differences. Darren, are there times when you use your ability to pass as a white man to your advantage? Or do you think it is to your disadvantage when you're doing broadening participation work? I would actually say it's probably a disadvantage. For the most part, I oftentimes think it is because I often get spoken to like a white male who needs to be quote unquote enlightened. And people don't realize that I'm part of a underrepresented group that is so small. There's not even demographics on us. There's not even, you know, statistics. And that's not even just as being, uh, you know, an individual with albinism. That's that's you know being disabled. There's a disturbing lack of statistics on the on the disabled as well. But people oftentimes don't even realize I have albinism. Um, I just look like someone of my Scandinavian heritage. So oftentimes it seems as if I don't have street cred, <laughs> for lack of a better word. Now, in order of in kind of using it to, to get by, to pass, I'm sure that happens all the time. Because I am sort of lucky enough to quote unquote pass, I'm sure it happens all the time and I don't even realize some of the privilege that I am privy to. I wish I could, you know, I wish I could say I was a little more aware of that side of things. Now, do I actively use it? No, no. And in fact, many, many people around me tell me, Darren, you should be actively asking for a bit more 
assistance with regard to your disabilities and stuff because you 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 have that right you should do it but it's it's difficult for me because why um wow because uh um wow what are the words to describe this why is it difficult for me to uh, to i don't know it's uh it's admitting that you need the assistance and that's sometimes hard for a, uh, 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 you know, Scandinavian Minnesota farm boy to do. And so just to realize that you need that assistance. I'm also very, and a very independent person. So even before I could drive, I was very, very independent. So I guess I sometimes see that as an affront to my independence. It's completely unfounded, but. Well, for myself, you know, when I have dealt with, uh, my ankylosing spondylitis, which has been disabling for me at times in my life, the I can feel the psychological part that is the, if I allow for help now, it is a downward slide. Oh, yeah. Yep. And that my, my very sense of survival becomes at stake. Even if it's not true, my internal sense of it feels mm-hmm. threatened. Um, I can remember when I was a graduate student and I lived with another, I lived with a roommate and we didn't have a washing machine in our house. And, uh, so I had to walk up to the laundromat and every time I had to do my laundry, I would throw my laundry in this duffel bag, this giant duffel bag, throw it on my back and plod up the hill to this laundromat, do my laundry and come back down. And my roommate would always say to me, Darren, I can give you a ride. And I would say back to him, yeah, but if you give me a ride, then that one day that you're gone, the fact that I've got to put this stuff on my back and walk up the hill is going to be much worse. So if I just get used to this, then it, make, it makes it easier. Mm-hmm. You know? So I, I think that's kind of what you're getting at, you know, so. Yeah. So, uh, and part of what I was wanting to do there was acknowledge there's an internal part, but then oh, ask yeah. you about the external part, because I know for me, it also, uh, there's some part of me that is convinced I, I will lose my ability to make impact if they can mm-hmm. see too much. Mm-hmm. And yep. especially if they can see me admitting weakness, if they can see my me being disabled and overcoming it, then I'm not at risk in the way that if I am admitting it. And so I wanted to ask you about that a little bit, and especially in the context of academia and STEM, like what's mm-hmm. at risk when people see it? You know, there was... Um, we could go all kinds of places with this, but I've often said that us disabled folks face kind of an extra set of challenges because any of the issues with diversity that have been the result of, say, sexism or racism uh, or homophobia or whatever are the result of decades, centuries of nonsense decades, centuries of slander against women or against a particular ethnic group. And so they're founded in untruth. We're combating lies, basically. Now, when you move to disabled individuals, there's some truth to the notion that we have limitations. And 
this is the challenge with having a disability is the very real sense that we are limited in some way. And in academia, I always am sort of under the impression that I've got to work harder than everyone else to compensate for, you know, my disabilities. I, I, you know, I can't turn in a, turn in a report with a typo or I can't, you know, miss this sort of thing because, um, that's going to be proof that I can't do this job, you know, but the disabled person can't do this. So, so, you know, there it is. Those external issues are, are, are real. I mean, they're, they're real, you know. What's, what's striking for me is how similar our experiences are. You mentioned uh, being an outsider or, or feeling like you have to be twice as good. And those are the childhood messages that we get as Black children, that you have to be twice as good, um, that you cannot show weakness. People will, will assume your weakness is dumbness or that your kindness is, is dumbness. And, and being in situations where you are every day, all day, the only one and, and the amount of energy that it, that it takes and what it means or to, to not be able to show up as your authentic self. And I think it's a valuable lesson for those of us who are in broadening participation, who do this leadership or broadening participation work, to be mindful of always questioning our assumptions. People of color don't know. When, when I look at you, I don't know if you are my ally right, or my mm-hmm. adversary. And what it means for, for all of us to take some time to get to know people first in both directions. It's just been, been really in, enlightening for, for me to hear you talk about that. So, you know, you, you are my soul, yeah. right? We yeah, yep. life experience. Mm-hmm. We come to this from, from the same place. Not exactly the same, but there are just so many similarities in, in what you described in your life experience that are identical to my own. And you, you talk about that exhaustion. Yeah. That just exhaustion of constantly yeah. having to be what people expect of you or to, to it, it is, yeah, it is so debilitating. It is so exhausting. It never ends. So. Yeah. It never ends. I wish I could give you a hug. Ah, a virtual <laughs> hug to you, Darren. <laughs> But how far do similarities and knowledge go? Do they erase our differences? Wendy spoke with caution about the tendency to blur important boundaries and the realistic limits in our ability to truly know each other. Can a non-Native leader in STEM do what you do? Um, <laughs> with, uh, in an Indigenous community? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know how to answer that because I don't think, okay, well, okay. There are people who do what I do, but I don't think it means the same thing to them. And I don't think uh, they, they haven't lived that life experience in that community. So they're not as connected. It's just, it's just a job. And, and maybe there are relationships built, but I don't think the understanding and the um, spiritual connection is the same. 
And I think um, when a non-Native does work in that community, it's a lifelong learning to work with a different community. It's a lifelong learning diversity and equity. Include, you, ha it's a, you have to make that a lifelong thing. It's not just, oh, I took a workshop and I figured this out. Unless you're willing to completely submerge yourself into that culture, you'll struggle. There is a sense of insincerity to it. There are sincere people out there working in Indigenous communities, but it's a lifelong learning process. The other thing I always say is we, we say they have a cultural competence. To me, that's a dirty word. We're never, ever culturally competent in another person's culture, whether you've been there 20 years, 30 years, because you will never be that person. You'll never be that person walking in those shoes, culturally aware, but not competent. But people mistake that as having the ability to speak for a community. And that's why I'm always very clear. I'm only speaking for the Haida people, um, not any other indigenous community, because there's different protocols, different beliefs, different ideas. And there's 567 communities, nations, and I can't speak for them all. Another complexity of identity is its dynamic nature. In the last episode, Grady talked about the differences between his 20-year-old self and his current self. As that story indicated, some of the dynamic nature of identity occurs through situations and processes, such as aging and maturity. But sometimes we consciously change our identity. Here Grady talks about changing his scholarly identity and about the relationship between confidence and identity. What was it? that either brought you to or convinced you to make the decision to do this kind of work? It was a lifetime of experiences that led me to have the interest, but it came down to a single phone call where I said, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to go forward. And that was with a graduate student. She was my first grad student I ever mentored. We're still great colleagues. And she's now going up for tenure and her first professor job, our second professor job, I guess, next year. So I've seen her career advance. And it's not as simple as the, the old, you know, the old white man sees his daughter and then finally says, oh, my gosh, I never realized it's nothing quite like that. But I was just such a part of her career that I had become frustrated with her over some issues that she dealt with. We talked about a lot of these things, both knowing that we were very ignorant on the bigger issues. And when I got the opportunity to participate, she was the one that I went to and asked. I don't know what I was asking for. It wasn't approval. I think it was for a push. But I remember the conversation. It was from the hotel in Annapolis. And I said, I think we've got a great group of people. And I asked her something along the lines of, do I want to do this? Do I want to maybe forego some of my weather research to be a, quote, diversity guy, diversity person, diversity researcher? And I honestly don't remember her answer. It was obviously something affirmative, but it was definitely that phone call. I can remember, I can remember what I was wearing. I can remember the look of the room. I remember the, a lot of the details of that call because I was, I was nervous and excited and that's when I wasn't quite so used to being made to feel so ignorant and humble. Because there was a moment there where I thought, I can get on one of these groups, and maybe I can contribute here in the beginning, the nuts and bolts of proposal formation. But I didn't have any confidence that I'd be able to, to add much after that. And I certainly didn't want to do this and do a poor job of it. But then there was also that just selfish part of not wanting to necessarily be considered something other than what I had been, which was weather and climate grading. Does being white, male, uh, I'll use your word, bald from the South, help you be the diversity person? Or does it hinder you from being the diversity person all the way? If you're asking if it prevents me from doing it, I think early on, maybe, because I was worried I wouldn't be taken seriously by something or somebody. 
But over the last two years, I don't think so. I don't think that it hurts. I do think mm-hmm. that occasionally I've, I've gone into a, well, we have a, a struggling group on campus that you know, is working towards ideas to make the campus more diverse. And when I go in there, there's maybe two older men, non-students that participate. Uh, there's me and one other department chair. And I have noticed when we speak, people pay attention a little more. And maybe it's just because we speak loudly or we're wearing suits, we're older, or maybe all of the above. So I, yeah, it, it helps even in a room full of people that are doing diversity work. Finally, woven throughout this podcast is the strategic use of identity. We addressed this considerably in the last episode, and we will explore this topic in much more depth in the next one. But for now, we introduce a new voice, Eric. As is true for Grady, Eric's questions of identity focus on navigating the experience of identity-based privilege. How does your social identity impact diversity work or not? Does it help or hinder? Well, I don't remember if it was the workshop that you all did or what we did with the Knapsack Institute there in Colorado, but at least for part of that where it was sort of taking off this, you know, who is sort of the privileged in all of these categories. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I hit the list on every one of them that I'm in the privileged category and everything that was being listed off. I suppose that has benefits and drawbacks. And I have had the thought there are times when I've felt if I'm part of a group and we're talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion, I probably ought to just keep my mouth shut because I don't have that perspective of being sort of in the minority and the out group like other people do. And I need to be careful about thinking that I have some grand insight to offer because I'm not in those underrepresented populations and groups. And so I certainly have had that thought. And to the degree that it's helpful, focused me maybe a little bit more on listening, you know, and that's a good thing. I recognize how other people have framed it and, you know, have uh, suggested that that makes it more important for, you know, me to speak up and, you know, be an advocate. And there's an aspect of that that I sort of understand. There's some very briefly aside on some literature that you may have seen the same research as well. But for a while, they used to really emphasize that women in business who wanted to advance should have another woman serve as their mentor. And there's been a, some sort of flip on that, where as they followed that, they, they found that those who are successful in sort of advancing on the ladder instead had a man as the mentor. And, and sort of the logic is, okay, if you've got someone sort of advocating for you and, and a woman is advocating for another woman, people can sort of dismiss it and say, you know, well, that's because we get it. You don't want to have more women around and, you know. But when a man does the same thing, people think, oh, well, unless they think there's some sort of sexual relationship or something along those lines, this must be an honest assessment, you know, that this person needs to advance. So on that level, I realize coming from a more privileged position places maybe some responsibility for me to do some more work that others cannot do. I also, you know, something that I've wrestled with a little bit, am sensitive to, and I don't know how much of it is me you know, not really, you know, just trying to give myself a way out or not. And so I have to be cautious of that. But there is an aspect where not just sort of pushing on all of those, you know, sort of opportunities. So I guess it goes back to 
One, my thought about, you know, people, I believe that people respect me because if I speak up, I'm not doing it just to be nice or whatever, but because I think it's really important. And if I speak up on a lot of things, it can be dismissive. And so I think it impacts me at, at times in, in terms of wrestling with sort of knowing how to handle some of those things. And when is it appropriate to take that extra step because I am in a privileged position and I'm able to do that differently from others? And yet making sure that each of those opportunities are meaningful and purposeful and add value. How do we make use of our identities in ways that are meaningful and purposeful and add value? This episode did not answer that question. But these broadening participation leaders make it clear that the answers can only be found by continually engaging the many questions, dynamics, and dimensions that social identity entails. Identity by itself is not an answer to anything, no matter how many times and ways we are asked to check boxes. In the next episode, we look at code switching as we take a deeper dive into understanding how leaders for broadening participation Navigate the interaction between identity, context, and strategy. Thanks for listening to this episode of Leadership for Broadening Participation, copyright 2018, Cardia Group, LLC. We would like to thank the Gold Project leaders for the insight from their interviews and the Golden community for their support and inspiration. Special thanks to Diana Cardia and Kelly Mack for leading the professional development aspect of Golden and for producing these podcasts. Thanks to Karen Williams for graphic design and Cindy Glover for editing and technical support. Music is by Kit Kat Club under a Creative Commons license. This material is based upon work supported by the National Science Foundation under grant number 1748340. Any opinions, findings, and conclusions or recommendations expressed in this material are those of the authors and do not necessarily reflect the views of the National Science Foundation. Music